0: Hi, guys. Russell here. Um, For the longest time, I thought Warren Buffett was like the premier commodity investor in the world. Um, You know, if I looked back at uh, like investments into PetroChina, for example, uh, and then selling of PetroChina, I thought, wow, this guy really has the oil market down to a T. Um, And that's why when I saw him buying into the Japanese trading houses, I thought that was a uh, him uh, another good bet on the commodity cycle, but actually I'm starting to think they're more political bets, uh, and and bets that have been more closely aligned to policy. Uh, let me explain that in, in a bit more detail. So if you look at Petro for those of you who remember, he bought started he had almost 10% of Petro in around 2004, um, and he then sold that. You know, that was a position he built up and then sold it uh, in 2007. Uh, Not at the top, but pretty close to the top. Uh, PetroChina uh, was briefly the first trillion-dollar company uh, before going sideways now, or being range-bound for like uh, nearly twenty years. Um, uh, And you know, if you looked at the oil price, which was pretty, it's been a pretty good uh, driver of PetroChina's share price. You can see that it was selling, you know, near the the sort of peak uh, of the oil price at one hundred and forty bucks a barrel. We've gone closer, but we've never gone past it. So the whole Petrochina experience for me, uh, you know, made me think he was an excellent, excellent uh, commodity investor. And so when he started uh, taking uh, the big stakes in uh, the Japanese trading houses, which for Japanese investors were always seen as sort of domestic commodity plays, I thought he was you know, sort of waving the green flag or the checkered flag for another commodity cycle. Um, uh, but what has been interesting, if you look at like PetroChina in the in the chart above, that hasn't really been a great place to invest. Um, but if you take a look at, let's say Itochu, one of the Japanese investing, investment houses that Buffett has a stake in, the share price has been absolutely phenomenal and multiples higher than the peak we saw back in, uh, 07. Um, now when I also saw these, uh, you know, these investments into, uh, uh, the tra- Japanese trading houses. At the time, I was very excited by the uh, food, Im- the idea of food inflation, of China becoming a-, a food importer, net food importer, just as China became a net oil importer back in sort of 2002. So I thought that the agricultural side of uh, the commodity world would do really well. And torture in particular, has very significant agricultural assets, both in Thailand and in the US. Um, and so I thought, you know, uh part of uh, Warren Buffett's investments into the trading houses was a uh, you know waving this sort of green flag for agricultural investments. Now that did happen for a while in sort of 2000 2001, but what we can see and I've used here the Van Eck Agricultural Agribusiness ETF. It's been a very poor place to invest, particularly over the last couple of years. Um, agricultural names have not done well. And even in Japan, if you take a more sort of explicit agricultural name like Kubota, uh, which is a big tractor uh, manufacturer and big overseas business, it's been disappointing, even in yen terms. And so, you know, the Japanese trading houses, I thought were going to signify a sort of bull market in the commodity area, uh, a bull market for commodity and real assets. That has not been been the case. Um, And particularly with the trading houses, historically, They've been very cyclical. They're also very complicated. They have a lot of subsidiaries. um, And they also have lots of debt, both at parent and subsidiary level. So historically, investors have always been a bit hesitant with the trading houses. Um, And, you know, so it was very, it was was a bit of a head scratcher when, um, you know, when they were first bought. Uh, Now, in previous posts, I've talked about how the trading houses have become uh, committed share companies that buy back shares on a regular basis. Um, So we look at like Mitsui & Co, one of the trading houses we can share, see shares outstanding has fallen from uh, 1.8 trillion down to 1.5 trillion shares. Um, But then, you know, we can see other commodity producers like Shell, for example, are being more aggressive in buying back Shells. I think, you know, when I look at them carefully, what really makes the Japanese trading houses very special Uh, and have been such great investments relative to other sort of commodity names elsewhere, has been the BOJ QQE policies. Um, So the BOJ now owns a huge amount of the Japanese stock market through ETFs. Uh, They make up up almost 80% of all ETF assets in Japan. Uh, And estimates would say that they are bigger owners than GPIF. So that's the Japanese Pension Fund, which is the biggest Uh, shareholder in in Japan. And so if we look at and look at, like, let's say, Mitsui, one of the the trading houses uh, shareholder list, um, I'm not sure what Euroclear Bank is exactly there, but GPIF, Bakusha Halfway, and then we have a whole bunch of ETF suppliers, BlackRock, Nomura, JP JP Morgan. But if we assume uh, GPIF, Bakusha Halfway, and the Bank of Japan, uh uh long term holders who are not going to be selling any shares at all. That's twenty-five percent of the float taken out straight away. And then we have Euroclear in there and then you also have other people in there. So we have a huge amount of locked up shareholders uh who have locked up a lot of float. Um what we also see when we look at like let's say Mitsui is because of the Bank of Japan has been very lax in removing uh, monetary accommodation, uh, corporate bond yields, and Japanese BOJ is a buyer of corporate paper, Uh, uh, Japanese bond yields are much lower than in the rest of the world. So if we look at a Mitsui bond in 2039, so 15 years, uh, that is only yielding 1.8%, still higher than where it was, but if we look at like a sort of similar uh, tenured bond from Shell, for example, you know, in Euros would be at least twice the yield. And then, of course, the US would be even higher than that. So when I was sort of thinking, you know, what, you know, the the Japanese trading houses look like uh, an aggressive uh, trade on uh, Japanese policy, more than Japanese monetary policy and also government policy, more than uh, an explicit bet on commodity prices. And, And I think that's probably why they've done so well. And so, if I'm thinking of it from that perspective, could we use a similar sort of analogy with uh, Buffett's bet on PetroChina? So, if you go back, uh, you know, into the sort of early 2000s, uh, emerging market debt traded huge spreads over Treasuries, uh, and that was driven by the Asian financial crisis, driven by the dot-com bust, and also driven by the big Argentinian devaluation in 2001. And so, emerging market borrowing costs were huge premiums to US Treasuries. And you can see that in what's called the JP Morgan EMBI spread. So it was like nine, 9% higher than treasuries. Sort of 2001, 2002. And then as the commodity boom got going, as China's entry into WTO really got this boom going, the spread on emerging market debt collapsed and PetroChina would have been a definite beneficiary of that as a, you know, large Chinese controlled state-owned enterprise. And so, you, you know, the WTO and the collapse in bond spreads would have been a huge tailwind for valuations there. Uh, and so, looking at the PetroChina uh, sort of investment, it did combine, uh, I think, a combination of policy, credit, uh, and earnings to create a really powerful investment tailwind for that, for that story. Um, and so, for me, you know, when I thought about PetroChina, I saw it as a great macro story. Um, a really good macro story. But now when I look at it, you know, having looked at what Warren Buffett's done with the Japanese train houses, I can see it was also a good policy story, both from US uh, treatment of China into WTO and also from falling uh, corporate EMBI bond spreads. If we look at some other Chinese investments by Buffett that have recently exited BYD, uh, which they bought back, I think, in 2007, 2008, um, for a long time, did nothing, and then uh, when EV policy became incredibly supportive, the stock went ballistic, and they've exited. So again, we've seen it with China. A sort of rather than being a, an explicit macro story, is almost like a policy story. Looking at where policy could go, and where you know, and what could benefit from it. Benefit from it. Um, and you know, so what I'm trying to say here is that uh, I think Warren Buffett's investment into Japan. Has been to to really capitalize on these very pro capital policies, and and to their credit, they've made that work incredibly well. Um, now, what that means is I think we have to sort of think of Jack uh, Buffett's investment in the trading houses not as commodity bets, but more as uh, a private equitization game, the game that we've seen in Apple and we've seen in the U.S. market now. Um, so for me, I sort of changing the way I look at Buffett from. So historically, I bracketed him with uh, sort of George Soros as, you know, a master of the, you know, macro cycle, master of bonds and equities. And now I would say, you know, with the investment process that we've seen being uh, of, of Berkshire Halfway and Buffett is actually Buffett's moving closer to the sort of private equity titans of Kravis and Schwarzman in using credit. To extract, to extract value from firms. Um, and what's really interesting is if you look at the share prices of, and I've been bearish on private equity, but I haven't shorted them because uh, it hasn't felt right. But if you look at the share prices of Berkshire Halfway, highly, much more correlated now to KKR and Blackstone than anything else. Um, and so what I suspect and really where I'm going with how I think about markets is I think now Buffett, Cravett, and Schwarzman are all hoping that BOJ never raise interest rates and continue to run these massively dovish policies, uh, which I think has been really good for their uh, value creation with their investments. Anyway, I hope that makes sense. Stay safe. We'll talk again soon. Ciao.